Jesus will return. Once he came to die for sinners, and once again he'll come to judge the world in righteousness. We know this because of scores of promises. Think, for example, at the ascension of our Lord in Acts chapter 1, where two angelic messengers told the apostles who stood there watching Jesus ascend and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who has been taken from you up into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The Apostle Paul confirms this in 1 Thessalonians 4. And when he says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And then in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus closes the canon of the New Testament by, again, promising, Behold, I am coming quickly. But even apart from these promises, we know that Christ must come again to consummate his saving work. How else, unless he returns, can every wrong be righted? How else can Satan receive his final condemnation and judgment? How else can Jesus gather all his elect to himself? The clear teaching of the Bible is that history will have an end, a completion. And that end will not happen because of global warming or or because of nuclear destruction. It will happen because of the second advent of Christ. The biblical paradigm of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation will then be completed. Believers may differ as to whether this will be a premillennial or postmillennial or nonmillennial return of Christ. They may disagree as to the timing of the events on the eschatological calendar. But there can be no disagreement between believers that Jesus will return. That's because of the overwhelming biblical evidence. Christ's return is spoken of 318 times in the New Testament. The only New Testament books that don't mention the return of Christ are Galatians and 2nd and 3rd John. Jesus spoke often about his second coming. Think, for example, about his statement given the night before he goes to the cross in John 14 when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. The Apostle Paul calls this in Titus 2, the blessed hope of all Christians, the return of Christ. And he says that again in Philippians chapter 3, that all Christians eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In our text today, and I hope you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 12, In our text, we're going to find extended instructions on the second coming. And what the key instruction we'll hear from our Lord is to his followers is to be ready. Jesus shifts the emphasis in his narrative from being worried about the present to being prepared for the future. The themes, if you're familiar with Luke chapter 12 and what's come before this text, before verse 35... The themes all go together for one of the best ways to mortify hypocrisy, covetousness, and worry is to be watching for the Lord's return. When you're living in the future tense, it's difficult for the things of the world to ensnare you. Now, if you've not been with us on a Sunday before, what you caught us in is the midst of a huge emphasis on the part of this pulpit 
to sharpen our interpretive skills. So in the mornings, we've been studying the parables of Christ, which requires some interpretive skill. Today is our 15th week in that. And in the evenings, we're doing the same. We're looking at types and shadows of Christ found in the Old Testament, which point forward. And tonight will be our 15th and final type. We'll be looking at Solomon as a type of Christ. And you'll want to join us for that as well as we close out the Lord's Day. Let's seek the Lord's help now as we prepare to dig deep into this text. Ever-blessed Lord, we will remain in our ignorance unless you enlighten us. Then having heard the truth, we will remain immobile unless you empower us to be more than just hearers of the word, but doers also. So take hold of our minds now and instruct us. Then take hold of our feet and move us into joyful and obedient living. We pray through the merit and mediation of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So I said you'll need your copy of God's word open. We're going to dig deep into this text and we're going to Notice what the instruction is for you and I as we wait and are prepared for the second advent of Christ. Look at the preparation that's commanded. Look at verse 35 and 36 in our text. And a wedding is mentioned there. Sandy and I love weddings. We love the fact that we've had a bunch and we have a bunch more on, on the horizons. We usually think they should be a lot more fun and they should last a lot longer than they do. Hebrew weddings could last several days. In fact, there are historical records of weddings that lasted four weeks. So that the time of the master's return, notice what we're seeing in verse 36. Jesus uses this language of of a wedding and a master returning from a wedding. And who knew when you went to a Hebrew wedding in the first century if if this would be a three-day wedding or a three-week wedding. And so these top-flight servants who are mentioned in verse 35 and 36, they're not phased. No matter how long the master is gone or isn't gone, they're ready. And look what their readiness is in verse 35. Even though it's late at night, their waist was girded, which is a prominent biblical expression for one who's ready. Think, for example, how that little phrase is used to describe readiness. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says, Stand, having your waist girded with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then Peter uses the same illustration in 1 Peter 1 verse 13 when he says, Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the idea of being girded that we're commanded in verse 35 is to remain fully clothed in daytime wear. These servants had their long robes tucked under their belts, making it possible for them to move quickly. The night was also kept bright. Look at verse 35 because of these servants. They kept replenishing the oil in their lamps, and they kept trimming the wicks for maximum bright light. They were awake, alert, and and ready to give their master a proper reception. Yes, he'd been gone a long time, but they were ready for his return. They were listening for his knock on the door. Look at verse 36, what they're waiting for. These servants, be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks... They may open to him immediately. 
They were listening for that knock on the door. No doubt they had a a meal ready and they just couldn't wait to say, Welcome home, Master. We're so glad you're back. Let us wash your feet. That is, Jesus is saying, how all of Christ's followers are to wait for him. In fact, he commands such a model. Look at verse 35. This is an imperative that Jesus gives his church. Let your waist be girded. You yourselves be like men who wait. And this means not a a passive lethargic wait, not just some who are waiting, but each believer is filled with active service, continual preparation, and joyous anticipation. J.C. Ryle rightly said, Readiness for the return of Christ implies nothing that's impossible or unattainable. It requires no angelic perfection. It requires no man to forsake his family and retire into solitude. It simply requires nothing more than a life of faith and holiness. When Jesus tells his disciples, look at verse 35 and 36, when he tells them and us to be on the alert, he is not telling them to look for signs. That's not the way to be prepared for his return. No, to be alert and ready for his return is to live a sanctified kingdom-centered, purposeful, holy life, to be spiritually awake. I had great counsel when I was a seminary student 35 years ago that I should make the acquaintance of one outstanding dead theologian. And I should go deep in that relation with him. I should, should learn him inside and out. And there are only a handful of men who really would qualify for this, but I chose as my, my mentor and my best friend, Thomas Boston the great Scottish Presbyterian pastor who died in 1732. So you think I'm teasing when I say all my friends are dead. No, they've been dead a long time. And Thomas Boston addresses this subject. He, by the way, if you're struggling with covenant theology, he is the premier ever covenant theologian. Well, Boston says this, this preparation, this readiness consists of six elements. First of all, regular fellowship with God. He who would be ready must be walking with God as Enoch did in Genesis 5. The way to be ready is to maintain close ties with the living God. The second way to be prepared is to wean your heart away from the world and constantly acknowledge this world is not our home. And so you are ready to be taken out of this world at any time by Christ. A third way to prepare is to keep a clean conscience. A fourth, and this is again plagiarizing earnestly from Thomas Boston, a fourth way to prepare for Christ's return is to be diligent in our gospel labors and our earthly calling. A fifth way is a willingness to leave this life at a moment's notice. And finally, Boston says the way to be prepared and on the alert for Christ's return is, is to cultivate a well-grounded expectation of a better life in the world to come. Well, notice the blessing that Christ pronounces in verse 37 and 38. Then unexpected turn of events takes place. Look carefully at what happens when the master returns. These faithful and expected servants have the tables turned on them. The faithful returning master rolls up his robe, 
Look carefully at verse 37 and 38. Girds himself and begins to serve them. This is breathtaking. When you look at verse 37, we read these words, Jesus describing himself. I say to you that he, that is the returning master, that is Christ, will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. I would tell you that Jesus hears gasped in disbelief at this moment. For that lie between master and servant in first century Hebrew culture was never transgressed. But what was unthinkable to them is part of our Lord's mission. This reversal of roles, of course, is is in complete harmony with the teaching and conduct of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want you to get away from these words in verse 37. You need to recognize, and this is reaffirmed in the book of Revelation, what will happen at the return of Christ. Look at it there in verse 37. Be staggered. Let this feed your faith and your expectation that we will be served at the marriage supper of the Lamb by Christ. Well, think of how many times this is told to us. In Luke chapter 22, in the midst of one of the many apostolic debates over who was greater, Jesus told the disciples, Who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves you. Then again in John chapter 13, we have Jesus demonstrating this service, how it is his delight to be our waiter and our foot servant. In John 13, we're told that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, he had come from God as was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. This parable of the waiting servants could only be told by the Savior who would wear the weakness of his people by taking on himself the flesh of their humanity, who would strip his robes off to wash the feet of his disciples, and who would serve as their substitute by dying on the cross as their penal substitutionary atoning sacrifice. This picture is too good to be true. I've read verse 37 over and over again until I've, I've been gripped by it. I've, I've tried to find a loophole and think, oh no, Jesus, you, you shouldn't stoop to wash my feet. You shouldn't stoop to be my waiter. But look at the key word in verse 37. Assuredly. Jesus says, you can take it to the bank. I will be your waiter. I will be your servant. Now, an observation on the timing. Look at what Jesus says about the timing of his second advent. Because, oh, I know amongst us, there are date setters and clock watchers and people who their one question is, when? Well, Jesus never answers that question. Has no intention of answering that question. In fact, he's opposed to that question. What he will affirm is, is that he's returning. And when you ask when, look at his answer in verse 38. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so that is prepared, blessed are those servants. 
Now, I want you to think about these watches. Look at them there in verse 38. You have the second watch and the third watch mentioned. What's hilarious, if you know anything about the, the time frame, there were four watches of the night in Jerusalem time. Listen to when they were. Six to nine in the evening, that's the first watch. Nine to midnight, that's the second watch. Midnight to three in the morning, that's the third watch. And three in the morning until six. But look at what Jesus does in verse 38. He says, if he should come in the second or third watch, you said, hey, 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 what happened to the first and fourth watch? Very subtly, by the omission of first and fourth watches, Jesus seems to be hinting that his second coming will not be so soon as impatience expects or so late as carelessness supposes. But notice the key word in this section in verse 37 and 38. Look what the repeated word is. Do you see it there? It's the word blessed. Blessed are those servants, he says in verse 37. And then again, he closes this section by saying it again in verse 38. Blessed are those servants. So Jesus now uses another illustration. Look at verse 39 and 40. This parable proceeds very in an orderly fashion. Jesus uses another illustration in verse 39 and 40. It's this. If a homeowner knew when a thief was going to break into his house, he'd be prepared and not leave his home unprotected. In the spring of 1982, Sandy and I were students at Mid-South Bible College in Memphis, and I was so excited that night to go to, I was grappling with Calvinism and the Reformed faith, and that night at Independent Presbyterian Church in Memphis, The Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology was happening, and the title of the conference was Predestination, Everything You'd Wanted to Know But Were Afraid to Ask. And that night, J.I. Packer and R.C. Sproul were speaking. And so I went to the conference that night. Sandy had basketball practice for the college team, and men's team didn't have practice, so I took off, and, and we zipped out of the house that sat at the corner of Union and Hollywood, and and thought nothing of it. I went and reveled in the the speaking, and I was so excited. I probably was on the highest cloud I've ever been on because the Reformed faith fell together for me that God had ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Drove home, pulled into the driveway, and our front door was wide open. I thought, well, Sandy needs to shut the door when she comes home. Walked in the door, And every book I owned was piled, and it looked like a tiny Mount Everest in our living room. All my books were there, and they'd been opened and done like this. Because when thieves break in, they think you hide money in your books. So never hide money in your books. I'm going to tell you where to hide money. So all my books were there. And so I was just staggered. Our TV, it was one of those old TVs that weighed more than you. And so they hadn't stolen that TV. It probably weighed too much for them to carry But I looked quickly and noticed about 500 of my record albums were missing. Now I was mad. Walked into the kitchen and I was furious because Uncle Gene had just given us a side of beef in a freezer. The freezer had been taken and all our beef. So, so far the big losses were record albums and beef. And the thing that really just added insult to injury for me was this thief had taken out a can of Mountain Dew and had drunk it and left it on the kitchen counter. (laughs) 
So I thought, well, at least Sandy wasn't robbed. Walked into our bedroom closet and they had taken all her shoes. So for the next year, Sandy walked around Memphis looking at every woman she saw doing like this. And so the, the worst thing, when Sandy got home, the worst part was our dog had been thrown in a closet and locked there and was traumatized because of this. And so we called the cops, of course, and they, they asked what sort of preparations we had made to not be robbed. And I said, well, not really any. I just never thought a thief would come in the night, which is what happened. But that's the illustration that Jesus uses and is used over and over again in the New Testament. In fact, this is the favorite picture of the New Testament writers of when Christ will return, like a thief in the night. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, You know perfectly that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Peter picks up the same illustration and says in 2 Peter 3, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And then in Revelation 16, Jesus says it himself, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. And so exposure to destruction... The New Testament says, Jesus and his apostles say, exposure comes from lack of readiness. Anyone would be prepared if you knew a significant event was coming. If I would have known that night in the spring of 1982 that a thief was coming, I would have just stayed home and got the tape and sit on my couch with a gun loaded. But since you don't know the timing, and no one can, since you don't know the timing of the second advent of Christ, the point that Jesus is making is always be prepared. The analogy that's being made, just as the homeowner isn't ready for a thief in the night and suffers great loss, so those who are not ready for Christ's return will suffer irrevocable loss, namely eternal destruction. What the reader is to see is Jesus is a beloved master who returns to reward and serve those who are waiting for him. And he's a thief who will take away everything from the unprepared. Now look at the language, what Jesus calls himself in verse 40, because it's an important title. Do you see it there? Jesus says, therefore you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Why does Jesus give himself the title Son of Man in verse 40? Jesus uses a title there that's highly important. Throughout the New Testament, we find various titles being used for Jesus. Teacher, Lord, Christ, Son of God, Lion of Judah, Master, Son of Man. The most frequently used term in the New Testament is Christ, or the Anointed One, the Sprinkled One, the Messiah. But the second most used title for Jesus is this one, here in verse 40, the Son of Man. It's used 83 times in the New Testament. And of those 83 occasions, 80 of them are by Jesus himself. It is far and away our Lord's favorite self-designation. Look at verse 40. Why does Jesus call himself this? Because what he's doing is he's speaking to people who are rooted and grounded in the Old Testament. It's the only Bible they have. And when he uses the term son of man, they're saying, 
Is he saying what I think he's saying? Is he calling himself that man of Daniel chapter 7? You remember the rollout of the term son of man in Daniel 7 where we read, I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the cloud of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him, that is the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is the one which shall never be destroyed. And so there in Daniel 7, we find that the son of man is sent to be the divine judge of all mankind. He's coming with the clouds of heaven and he's the one giving everlasting dominion and glory and a kingdom that will not pass away. For Jesus to apply that term to himself with these disciples is a radical statement of authority. Now, make no mistake, his disciples knew Daniel 7. They knew that this man standing in front of them, Jesus, was claiming to be none other than the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7. So then Jesus encourages them. Look at verse 42 through 44. And teaches them this truth. Faithful servants will be exalted. Did you hear that? Faithful servants will be exalted. He tells another parable in verses 42 and following. He, he contrasts two servants. One's faithful, the other is unfaithful. These two servants are supervisors or stewards. That is, they've been left in charge and they're responsible for many other servants. And as stewards, they'll give an account when the master returns. The first steward is described, look at him there in verse 42. He's described as faithful and wise. He's not dreaming. His feet are on the ground. He's not stopped working, parenting, evangelizing, serving. He's not stopped all those things and gone off to a cave in the mountain to wait for the return of the Lord. No, he's been busy doing what his master told him to do. When the master returns... He catches this steward in the act of faithfulness. And the master richly rewards him and places this faithful servant in a place of rule. C.H. Spurgeon would often close out his evening service with this benediction. Listen to these delightful words. May the Lord keep you waiting, working, and watching so that when he comes, you will have the blessedness of entering into larger higher and nobler service for which you are being prepared now. Christian watchfulness is not passive. It doesn't mean reading lots of speculative books about the timing of the return of Christ. It means faithfulness in evangelism, service, body life, labor in a, in a lawful vocation, and godly family life. But then look at verse 45 and 46. What happens to unfaithful stewards? We're told that he's not longing for the master's return. In fact, he's hoping that the master never returns. He's like the scoffer that Peter speaks of in 2 Peter 3, where Peter says, Know this, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his return? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, look at the logical progression carefully in our text. Look at verse 45 and 46 and watch how it proceeds. If that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming 
and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. Here's how, here's how unfaithful men reason. Jesus' return isn't for a long time. I can safely sin by violence and by gluttony and by drunkenness. And he's abusing the master's servants. See that in verse 45? In other words, believers. This one is taken by surprise at the master's return. Of course he is. Unbelievers are never looking for the return of Christ. And his behavior. Do you see it there in verse 45? Violence, gluttony, drunkenness. His behavior shows he is not a believer. And so when the master returns, the master makes that status definitive by judging and punishing him. But then comes a deep and a profound principle. Our culture has, has just about forgotten this principle. It is profound. It should guide us and dictate to us. Look at verse 47 and 48. Jesus speaks of judgment according to privilege. Jesus closes the series of parables with that concept. Hear it again. Judgment according to privilege. Our culture used to understand this. Great responsibility rests on those who have received much. This concept even had a motto, noblesse oblige, or the obligation of the noble. In this text, look at verse 47 and 48. Men are not punished simply for doing wrong, but for failing to do right, especially when they've received much in the way of privilege. Listen to this text. That servant who knew his master's will. So he had knowledge and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving a stripe shall be beaten with few. Here it comes. Here's the statement. Look at it. Everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Now I want to remind you of the privileges you've received. And so this means that much will be required of you. Let me point out just ten privileges that you have. All of you have at least nine of these. And so these privileges you have make you responsible when the returning master comes. To whom much has been given, much shall be required. First of all, you have the entire Old and New Testament sitting on your lap, in your language. You have everything that God is ever going to say to his people. It's sitting right there. It's a profound privilege. Think of how Old Covenant believers would have killed to have a New Testament. Tonight, as we look at the types of Christ, that's, that's where most of their pictures of Christ were. They were in the shadows and types of Christ. They would have drawn blood to have what you have, a New Testament in your own language. You've been privileged. A second privilege. You have the completed work of redemption. It's all done. The virgin birth, the sinless life of Christ, the saving death, the triumphant ascent, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's done. You have that and you know it. A third great privilege you have. You have the full abundant power 
of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You have profound power. You have the ability by that third person of the Trinity who's taken up residence in you to say no to sin. And he's been poured out in his fullness. A fourth privilege you have. Again, remember, great privilege, great responsibility. The fourth privilege, you have 2,000 years of the church's accumulated wisdom. A fifth privilege, you have abundant preaching at your fingertips. The other day I got to, you know that we uh, work with, with sermonaudio.com. We have something like 2,000 Woodruff Road sermons on there. I got to go over to the vault where all of that's being stored on the campus of Bob Jones University. And they're coming up now on 3 million evangelical and reformed sermons right there. You can go at any time. You can live in Singapore or Seneca, and you can go up and pull those up, three million of them. And so there's basically no excuse that you should ever be ignorant on any text in Scripture. You can pull up great reform teaching at any time. This makes you responsible. Then seventh or sixth, you have access to thousands of brilliant Christian books. They're just yours for the reading. The seventh, you, and this is the one that's, that is unique, some of you have great covenantal legacies, believers for generations before you. You have great privilege. Eighth, you have pastors to teach you, elders to shepherd you, and deacons to serve you. You are privileged. Ninth, you have great wealth. This country has more wealth than any nation in the history of the world's civilization. And finally, you have immense freedom. No one is going to tell you to stop attending worship. No one is going to tell you quit fellowshipping with other believers. No one is going to tell you to quit reading that Christian book. And so because you have been given much, much will be required of you. More so than any other people at any other time in history. And so I would ask, what have you done with all this knowledge and truth? Have you just sat on it? Has it gathered cobwebs? Or have you lorded it over others and pontificated a lot? What have you done with all this freedom to study and worship and evangelize? What have you done with all the financial and material resources God has entrusted you with? Maybe just... Bought a bigger house and taken a longer vacation? With great privilege comes great responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. That's what Jesus says. God has given you all these things so you might use them for his glory and service, not so that you would use them for your own temporal pleasure. Let me make a few applications from this series of parables. The first is, The second coming of Jesus is just as sure as the first coming was. The second coming of Jesus is just as sure as the first coming was. Do not think this is dramatic fiction. This event will occur at some point, a fixed date known only to God in future history. Write it down. The surest event that can happen in the future is this. The second person of the Godhead will return in power and glory and to judge the nations. A second application. 
You must prepare. You must be ready. That's the point of these parables here. When was the last time you gave a second thought, even a first thought to this? Christ will return and judge the nations. You are ready if you're holding on to this world with a loose hand, but clinging to Christ firmly. Finally, I would tell you the importance of doing. I want you to notice how this term is used. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. In verse 47, That servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will. Notice what the master found the slave doing. The ready slave, he was engaged in obedience and good works. Notice what is said of the servant who is actively involved in good works and doing. Look at verse 43. He's the one who will be blessed. If your concept of actively waiting for the second coming of Christ means that you sit around pontificating or that you're in spiritual retirement, there is no promise of blessing for you at the second coming of Christ. I'm not speaking of salvation by works. You've heard me speak far too often of free grace to think of such a thing. But I'm saying what Paul says in Titus 3. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God will be careful to maintain good works. I'm simply saying this. Our Lord, we are told in Acts 10, went about doing good. And you, in preparation for his return and readiness for it, you, if you're being conformed to the image of Christ, will do the same. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the power of your holy word and the clear message to us that we must live in readiness, that we must be faithful to hide your word now in our hearts. And so may we say those glorious biblical words, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.